Have you ever wondered what sets apart companies at scale right from startup from those who don't? Well, the Genius at Scale podcast is here to answer that question. I interview CEOs from scaling companies and explore the counterintuitive practices that help them grow in ways that other companies don't. We'll also explore the biggest mistakes that almost wrecked them. Hi, I'm John Hitler. I'm a nine-time company founder and CEO. Now I coach CEOs in scaling companies. We'll be joined by these visionary leaders who've defied convention, challenged the status quo, and redefined the very essence of scaling. This is Genius at Scale. Hello and welcome to Genius at Scale. Today's guest is Eric Malin from Bataan. Eric, tell us a bit about yourself. Sure. Thanks for having me, first and foremost. I was a part of the founding team at Bataan. I was the person responsible for operations, was head of operations. And we were focused on eliminating waste in supply chain, specifically focused on the truckload over the road transportation segment of the supply chain market, where we supported enterprise, major enterprise truckload carriers and eventually transitioned to becoming a a digital local fleet, the first digital local fleet. So we had a fleet of trucks that ran under our authority and have otherwise always been in transportation operations, strategy, growth sort of things. Last company I was with prior to Bataan was a company called LoadSmart. And prior to that, spent time in change management and strategy roles across the across the industry. So always in logistics? Always in, as we refer to it as in freight, specifically even too. Freight. Got it. Okay. Yes. But logistics, realistically. Yeah. Let's, let's I, I think it might... I think of my brothers-in-law as freight. Yeah. Cause they're, they come to my house and drink beer and, and don't ask permission. They're kind of like, and they're heavy freight. They're like, yeah, but that's maybe that <laughs> I don't, I don't, maybe I don't have my, my, my definitions correct. So how do you, in, in your industry, how do you measure or define scale? Cause you're, you're a scaling or your company has scaled really nicely. How do you define it or measure it? It's, so that's a really great, it's a really great question. I spent a bunch of time thinking about this week. I think of scale about, so first to me, scale is about production, which doesn't mean by the way that it can include sales. It it would just be when you're thinking of sales from the standpoint of production of revenue. And so I think of scale from the standpoint as to how do you increase throughput without proportionally increasing pain? And I use those words and I use something that's even just as generic as pain because it depends on the circumstance and how you're defining it. But really what it's about is how do you just do more with less or at the very least the same? Is there a vantage point or an intersection where you get optimal throughput for least amount of pain and you just have to find that organically or are there levers you can press to do that? I mean, I'm sure you could spend $3 to get one in revenue or one in throughput, you go, that's not pain, but that's super wasteful and you'll go broke. Right. It's a form of pain. Going broke is a form of pain. How do you, how do you <laughs> optimize painful. that? Or how do you, yeah, how do you get that to the perfect spot? So, and I think this is what's really part of the art of startups is knowing if you're at the perfect spot is very different than if you're at the spot you need to be at right now. And plenty of times in my experience of there have been things where people have said like, we need to scale this. And like the real question to ask is why, what is it that we need to scale? If we don't scale it, what happens? 
if we don't change anything and, and we're going through this change, like what actually is going to happen? Are we going to get a bunch of customers that are upset? If they're enterprise customers, is, is there an account manager we have on staff who's magic and we know that we can have them parachute in? And if that's the case, then is this really the thing that we need to work on scaling? I think of it from the standpoint as to you scaling, you have to think about as a, a function of a production, right? An operation, if you will. Again, it doesn't always mean operations, but you have to be able to model it doesn't mean that you do in fact model it as much as if you could build a conceptual model, you can then figure out where the various, like what the variables are that are really going to come and really going to surprise you. You're going to get kicked in the teeth, excuse me. And you're just, you're going to have some really unfortunate set of events that you just didn't foresee. And it's really, it's about enabling the business to endure the change that it's going through as you are rapidly growing. Ideally, otherwise you know, you're scaling down and that's generally a bummer, but yeah, this happens. This, yeah. Scaling in the wrong direction is oftentimes faster than scaling up. <laughs> yes. It's a, and it's an ugly, it's an ugly process. Yeah. It's a very different pain. Yeah. Yeah. That's a different podcast. We don't want that. We're not doing that. <laughs> so, no, uh, different podcast. Not yeah. yet. So you, you, you use a word that you and I talked a little off camera about it, about getting kicked in the teeth. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm curious there's getting kicked in the teeth and just losing your teeth or they're getting kicked in the teeth where you say two years later, you think you say, you know, I'm actually in an odd way. I'm grateful for that because had I not been kicked in the teeth, we would have slowly done something wrong. Can you, can you share a, a kicked in the teeth moment that has really helped you moving forward? Because it was the tuition you needed to pay that you might not have signed up for. Yeah. So it's, that's, it's a really great question. I, I do have a really good story and I'll, I will explain it from the standpoint of it, it, it's very like transportation logistics sort of centric. So I'll try to explain it from the standpoint as a, just sort of generalist, but to your point around tuition, I certainly don't look back on those memories fondly, but I'm grateful for the transformation that it forced, not just for the business, but also personally for me, it made it like I learned so much. And I'm a big believer in that a lot of times the best leaders, not are the ones that have stripes, but are the ones that have gotten kicked in the teeth. And that's also where you get your stripes. Anyway, digress. So there was a years ago at a past company, not Baton, a circumstance where we had managed to wire into our customers such that we could programmatically control demand. And what happened is that we were heading into a weekend and we were worried about not we were a little worried about not hitting our sales target. It wasn't at the end of the quarter yet, but we were just trying to be proactive. And so we had made some decisions about how to manage our sort of dashboard, if you will, through an algorithm that largely resulted on in increasing the conversion rate of the amount of demand that we saw. So we, we would see demand, but then the amount that we actually handled and were converting was the, that was one factor. The other thing that happened, however, was that we hadn't good controls at the time to see this was that the amount of the underlying volume that we were then converting on also increased. So the conversion rate increased, underlying demand also increased. And what happened is, as you would have expected, the amount of business that all of a sudden we were flooded with just exploded. Right. So much so to the degree that our CEO got a call from a senior director at a major publicly traded retailer, which is pretty high up on that food chain, if you will, 
And basically it was like, if you don't fix this, you no longer have a relationship with our customer. And that person, the CEO turned around, called me and said, fix it now. <laughs> so I got my teeth kicked in effectively. And the next several days were horrendous. And it was a process of first understanding what happened and then to figuring out how to fix it. On the figuring out how to fix it, that was actually simpler just because the reality is that we, 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 we turned it off. We, it wasn't like, how do we dial back? It was just flat out. Like, how do we shut off the valve for a moment? Like, kill the faucet. Let's get back on our feet. And it was then a circumstance of where are my best people? How can I or what can I do to pull them off of the things that they're doing and deploy them on this? Because this is now the P0 of P0s, P0 being priority. The thing that was really interesting, though, and I'm really fortunate to have observed this, is I've learned that in business, in any sort of businesses, there are natural rev limiters, meaning the people, let's say that you're thinking about it from the standpoint of, to, let's say, onboarding customers. If your salespeople are accountable for onboarding your own customers, what happens is that you can only, you can only acquire and onboard new customers at the rate your salespeople can onboard, or excuse me, acquire and then onboard. If you then separate and you detach that rev limiter that's natural, so onboarding customers, and you don't have a good framework in place, and this isn't what happened to us, it's just a simple sort of analogy, but you don't have a good framework in place, then all of a sudden you have a bunch of salespeople going out, converting a bunch of demand, and you have no one to catch it. It was similar. It was a much more freight-specific sort of transportation-specific circumstance that, that we went through, but it basically translated to we didn't have any way to process the demand. And in the way that transportation works within freight brokerage or the execution works within freight brokerage is that it's a very linear sort of process. And so if it doesn't get past the first thing, it never makes it through the rest of the process. Got it. So if you screw up at the beginning, you're screwed up all the way along. Yes. Yeah. So what we didn't have in place was we didn't have good monitoring of what was happening with throughput at that level. And then what was also happening with the exceptions? It was the exceptions that killed us. Because what we saw was that the, there was a, there was amount of business that just kept moving on top and then little pieces just kept getting stuck and would just sit and just sit and sit. And those are the ones that are causing so much problems. So many problems, excuse me. And what we found was that the first thing is we had to have monitoring in place. What does the underlying demand look like? Is it going to increase or is it not? Because then we, we should, you know, make sure to rethink those conversion changes that we were talking about. On top of that, what does throughput look like? What is your, like, what's the average, but then also where are you sitting at from a median standpoint? Are you all of a sudden starting to see problems balloon? How lean actually is your process such that when things happen, you have a way of dealing with the exceptions in a scalable manner. And when things are no longer scalable, you can figure out how to triage exceptions very quickly. And, and then lastly, just like you have to understand the production capacity of your system, which is a weird concept because again, when it goes to those natural rev limiters within your business, if you don't understand that, if you, if you disintermediate those and you don't understand the production capacity of whatever is the choke point, you're going to get just rocked. You're going to get kicked in the teeth. Yeah. And so that was my sort of, at least one of my stories of getting kicked in the teeth is just like, we thought we had monitoring. I'd actually just revamped a process. And so the monitoring was getting in place at which wasn't yet in place. And we just didn't know what we were, we didn't know what we were getting into and got kicked in the teeth. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know an entrepreneur that's 
really an entrepreneur that hasn't been kicked in the teeth badly because that's just the way it works. How it uh, happens. Right. Especially because you're inventing something ideally that's novel enough that there's not 10 models to just copy. If you're just copying somebody else's model and doing it cheaper, it's a form of entrepreneurship. But you're, you were building something that kind of didn't exist. So the, the company I was with then was Load Smart is the name of the company. And it, it, we were doing things that no one had done in transportation before. So the business model wasn't completely new, but the way in which we were executing was, was unique and was innovative. And it was that disintermediation. Normally in transportation, what happens is that the individuals who are responsible for generating the demand in a lot of circumstances also are responsible for sort of preparing the demand for execution internally. We had disintermediated where the generation of the demand execution, rather sort of the capture of that demand was programmatic. And so we got to the point where we were managed to get into a spot where it just like it, we didn't have the underlying systems yet in place. Right. Right. Hmm. The, the thing I also think is interesting about those circumstances though, just to, sorry, I, if you can't tell, I really nerd out about these things. What I, what I think is interesting about those circumstances and you're talking about as an entrepreneur, everybody's going to get their teeth kicked in. I guess the other thing I think of when I think of getting your teeth kicked in is that you didn't see it coming, or at least you didn't forecast it to be as bad as it is, which yeah. is part of not getting your teeth kicked in is at least you know where it's going to suck. Which is, which is the equivalent of what? Wearing a mouth guard? You, you know the kick is coming, but you get a mouth guard because you you got a sense we're, we're going to... Yeah, and like you can sort of plan for it. So like if I, get, if I get kicked in the teeth today, then I can make these sort of changes quickly, right? Like this is at least like I have an idea. So there was actually, there was a circumstance at Baton where we were growing too quickly. One of our insurance providers who was, they were the insurance provider for us on the, the fleet side. So we had a, a fleet of trucks that truckers, owner operators that we were working with. We were growing too quickly. They said, you, you know, you, you no longer can grow. You can't add anything. And so we had a moment where it was like, oh, this is, this is not good. This is sooner than we expected, but we knew that it was going to happen at some point in time. And as soon as it did, we had a plan for this is how we will respond. It makes so all the you, world a difference. Did you do scenario planning or scenario building so that when those sorts of inevitable or prop, maybe they're probable scenarios pop up, you at least had a a dry run of having done that? We didn't have scenarios in which we had dry runs as much as we all did. Like we had an agreed upon framework for an if this, then this, if this, then this sort of right. circumstance. Right. Because it wasn't, what had happened wasn't that there was an interruption in production. It was that there was an interruption in the, like the, the underlying foundation within the production. Right. If it is something where it's a production interruption, then that's like, that's an easy thing to scenario plan and you should absolutely be doing it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's, it's, it's amazing how pre-mortems they're, they're gaining popularity. Now it used to be called scenario building. You create the, the five worst Armageddon things and break up in teams and literally role play and figure it out. It doesn't mean it'll go exactly the same, but having done that, you, you've got a head start. Pandemic was a perfect one. Nobody had done a scenario anywhere in the planet. <laughs> so, so the first 90 days were so clunky because Everybody was running around like chickens with their heads cut off. Even governments and in the U.S., if you remember, states would have deals and then different counties said, but we want a higher stand. So you had counties suing their state and you go, so we don't have one national program. We have 50 state programs, but not really because some of the states had 12 counties doing it different. We had a thousand different scenarios 
I live in the county that was the most stringent in the US. We were the ones that said, you have to shut down early. We, we shut down before anybody because it was Silicon Valley. It's all scientists. And they said, we understand geometric progression. Oh, then you shelter immediately. And they, they did super stringent mandates and, mm -hmm. and lockdowns. Mm -hmm. And the rest of the country thought we were crazy. And then you had some, some states said, right. this, is this is BS and you don't even need a mask. And we were like, right. no, no, no. You need a full hazmat suit and an oxygen thing. It's like, that's in the same, that's in the same state you'd have that. It was just, it's interesting. But to that point, I, I know that there were some, there was some scenario planning, some, some sort of like crisis gaming, if you will, that had happened at the, the federal level, I think. Yeah. But what it showed is that it would be a disaster. It'd be like a total mess. No one would know what direction was up or who was right or left or, you know, what have you. So I guess the other side of the scenario planning is like, you have to listen to it. And I also, you you mentioned like pre-mortems. I, I don't know if it's just that like making things buzzwordy makes me like I get a bit of a reaction to it. But I think to me, the thing about it is just if it's buzzwordy, it takes away some of the fact that like just run the business, which means know what could happen. Like have your head on a swivel. Yeah. Yeah. And know like if something shuts down, how bad is it? How much is it going to hurt? Yeah. I do a lot of this with teams and the pre-mortems that I suggest are the ones that you can't fix in a day or two because a you know, a labor shortage or, you know, a, a snowstorm that shuts all, all things down for three days that you don't need a pre-mortem with that. You can figure that one out. You just say, okay, they'll have the highways cleared by Monday. Right. It's the ones where you say, oh, pandemic and we're in shutdown. What does that mean? And how do we, how long? I do, uh, yeah. Work from home. I mean, work from home now is easy, but at, yeah. at the beginning, it was like, "What do you mean everybody's going to work from home? What about the people that don't have a computer at home? What do they do?" <laughs> I I have a puppy now because when when work from home started, my wife was a part of an early early group before it was like a mandate everywhere, and yeah. and it was basically like, "Hey, you're going to try working from home for the next six weeks." And I get a text message. I was in New York at the time. I get a text message. It was like, "Hey." I'm working from home. We're getting a puppy. Yeah, exactly. I get home from New York and we went and got a puppy. So <laughs> I'm surprised she waited. I'm surprised all you had to maybe do is contribute to the name, but the puppy would, or, would already be home when she picked you up. But, uh, there was a chance. There was a yeah. real chance. <laughs> That's great. That's great. Okay. Fair or unfair? A company can only scale at or below the pace of scaling of the leaders. So if the leaders are scaling their capacity to lead their competence, their skills, their talents, the company can scale up at the same or, or maybe less rate, but they can't scale faster. Fair or no fair? I would say generally fair. I would expect that there are some circumstances, especially in technology, where things can scale at an unbelievable rate because like social media is a great example in that like Instagram, right? I mean, they went from zero to hero and they didn't necessarily have to scale the leadership right. and it turned out that they ended up being good leaders, but they didn't like, that wasn't the, the choke point. And they, they probably could have continued to do that if they had a bad leader. They were fortunate enough to have a good leader. And I would expect that's the exception. I think in general, if a leader doesn't, because it, at the end of the day, it's about prioritization for the business and how you're saying this is, or this isn't important or this is a bet that I'm willing to make, or this isn't something that I think we should spend time on. Right. Right. Fully. No, otherwise. Yeah. I think like outside of the exceptions fully agree. 
it's it's I see it because people people bring up the disaster culture places like Uber. They say, how did they scale? Well, just because they had a bad culture didn't mean they didn't build a great product or it doesn't mean the leadership was incompetent. It may have just been they had zero ethics or or skewed ethics or whatever, whatever. but it's it's an interesting debate maybe or discussion. So I'm always, I'm always curious because entrepreneurs know this because they have to live it every day. And, mm -hmm. yeah. I, I think on the Uber thing, what's even interesting is that they, it's, it's super easy to paint that as a disaster and to say that they, like they had no ethics and, you know, I want I guess I shouldn't even say it's super easy. The reality is you look at what they did and it's, it's not a hard, it's not even a really an argument. Like they make the argument for you. However, I think that what was unique about Uber is that they were, they were doing something that no one did before and they had to be extremely scrappy and extremely competitive. Yep. And they got those two pieces right. What they didn't get right was the fact that you can't do that in every single circumstance. Like you still can't, you can't forget to be a human. Yeah. You can't, you can't just like let humanity just no longer just like fully cease. Yeah. But they did get the competitiveness and the scrappiness really like they, they hit that bullseye full stop. Yeah. yeah. And they did build a, they invented an industry. It's like, Oh, that's hard to do. Uh, that's really hard to do. Not only did they invent an industry, like they changed lives. When was the last time that you stood on a corner in the rain or in the snow, waving your hand in the air, hoping that the next car driving by is a taxi that just didn't flip their light on? Right. Right. Yeah. Those days are over. Uh, Gone. You, you don't, you don't have to do that. Yeah. And they sucked. Those, that was, no one liked doing that. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's exactly right. And, and you forget that. I talked with a guest about a VC I work work with that refers clients to me and they fund what they call the requisite number of miracles it takes to get your product to market. And they, they he was, they were involved with Airbnb early on. And they said, if you think of Airbnb, the miracle they had to overcome because it didn't exist in our culture was you and I saying, wait a minute, somebody's going to go through my sock and underwear drawer and live in my house while I'm, while I'm on a business trip. No, what? No effing way are they going to do that? They had to build. We had. They had to build a place in our head where we could conceive of that. And now you just go if you're renting out your place because you're gone. You just say, you know, my sock and underwear drawer is probably about the same as their sock and underwear drawer. I mm -hmm. don't think it matters. And they're paying me four hundred bucks a night while I'm not here. Cool, right? <laughs> but that took an enormous amount of even. To even consider solving that problem, it and now it's you know you've got Verbo and Airbnb and there's there's a lot of them that's now specialized. Now it's like and there's still people that that it creeps them out to even think about it and they'll never do it. That's fine. They live on the non Airbnb equation, but for everybody else, they kind of say, "Hmm, makes really good sense. We want to we want to have five couples in Tuscany and we want a villa. Oh, we can rent it for three thousand dollars a day and split the fee." This is way better than a hotel. Yeah. Why would we consider a hotel? Uh, you couldn't have done that, ten, uh, what, 15 years ago, 10 years ago? You just couldn't do it. It, it just didn't yeah. didn't exist. And uh, Don't get into a stranger's car. It's the same thing with Uber. Right, you couldn't. You Same with Uber. They, they had a, a version of it, but I don't think Uber could have gone forward without Airbnb breaking that because it was the same thing. It was like, wait a minute. I'm going to jump in a car that, how do I know who this person is? Mm -hmm. It's what the VCs call a miracle. It's mm -hmm. SpaceX is the harder one where you say, well, these are 
how do you breathe in a non-oxygen environment? That's a different, that's a scientific yeah. one. But yeah. you think about it, you say, how do you, how do you overcome this? Because no one's ever thought of it this way. That's why entrepreneurs do so well. It's also why it takes so much money because it's, it takes a while to convince the whole world to do that. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. Certainly. Um, certainly. I want to flip to a, a conversation you and I had started off camera, the idea of scaling with more valuable talents than less valuable talents. I, I can only, if you put all the talents and said, this one's the most valuable and there's a group of them up at the top, my suspicion is there are, there are a handful or maybe a dozen talents that really are useful to scale a company. And then there's all the ones that you read about on LinkedIn that are polite, but stupid. They, it's, it's like tablescape state. Like people say, oh, creativity, you know, Creativity yeah, is table. It's table it. Yeah, it's that's like that's like a junior junior varsity version, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, curious if you have any talents that you could nominate, if you will, for you know what? You know, in my scaling experience, this talent was super valuable, and it's it it tends to be rare. So you you and I did talk about it. I the, the name that I have for it is not it's not actually a very good name, but what I've what I've learned that I'm good at is again, not a great name, what I would call sort of like 3d system vision, if you will, in that I'm good at figuring out several steps down the way as multiple systems are interacting, how putting pressure in one place will have whatever sort of impact in another. And by extension, how much does that impact something in turn that you care about? Like, is that something that you can manage through? Is it some, something that you can't manage through? Because at the end of the day, scale is just like any other thing in business, right? It's like figuring out a set of priorities. Is this something that we want to spend time on? Is this something that we can spend time on? You only have so many bullets in the chamber, so to speak. So understanding, sort of doing this like mental version of a stress test of like, okay, if this happens, then this is then okay and so forth. Then all right, that's actually where we're going to get kicked in the teeth. We have to address this now, yesterday, actually, because we have zero control. We have zero visibility into when this might happen. And it could be happening right now. And we still don't know about it. And that's, that's, as opposed to taking a single focus and saying, we've got to, we've just got to put our heads down and focus on this. You're saying we have to focus on this, but we have to monitor this and respect the fact that it's connected to this and watch all of them dynamically because it's a moving It's a, it's a dynamic system, not a, not a straight line. Right. Right. So um, simple example, like you might say, okay, well, we have this person who's responsible for customer onboarding. Let's stress test. Let's say that sales hits 500% of their quota. Great. That's amazing. Let's all celebrate. However, before we celebrate, let's implement. And this person is amazing, but they can't handle all of that. So we're going to pull from this place, this place, and this place. If you selected, let's say, customer support of one of those places, and you were then to model against the existing amount of volume of tickets, and you're going to have that one person or however many people focus on implementing, you're going to get more tickets. So you, you have to plan out like how that's going to happen. And then if all of a sudden you start getting more tickets and they're not around to support, then what does that mean actually for your roadmap? Because a lot of times on engineering gets pulled into a lot of these because everybody's short on time. So all of a sudden the promises that you're making to customers actually no longer can get fulfilled. That's, that's interesting. It sounds like the more dynamic version of optimization 
we talk with, we talk with guests all the time about what do you optimize for? But optimization usually is we optimize for gross revenue. You go, well, mm -hmm. gross revenue is great, but you got to fulfill at some point or you got to yeah. deliver or you've got to cut, you got to have, um, facilities or you got to be with, and no problem with optimization, but being responsible for what that then does. If you, if you optimize for gross revenue, because that's what your stakeholders want, what does that then do to the rest of your systems? Are you, are you ready for them? Are you staffed for them and ready for them? Are you just saying, if we build it, they, they will come. No, they won't yeah. come. You're, you're going right. to get, yeah. And, and like, if all of a sudden you spend a bunch of money supporting these customers and because promises that you've made don't come true and you end up with a bunch of churn, like what does that actually now look against your burn? Can you, can you sustain that? Do you have the cash on hand to fail? My favorite, my favorite story of, and th this was in .com. So, I mean, you're going back 20 years, 20, 22 years. I knew the head of sales and here's what they would do. Dot, uh, chipshot.com was the name of the company. And it, it, it was a colossal failure eventually. VCs gave them, gave them a ton of money and said, here's the way we're going to fund you based on the number of clicks you have or visits to your website. So they, they optimized for clicks to the website. Here's how they did it. They took a $500 Callaway specialty driver and for one hour during the day, but they didn't, they didn't tell you which hour, it would be on special for the first hundred people that bought it for 99 bucks. So they would lose, I mean, even at wholesale, they would lose 200 bucks per driver. But the theory was if all those, if, if a thousand people came and we only had to give away a hundred of them and they all bought something else, we'll make it up. Then because they wanted great customer service, they would FedEx it to you at their cost, free shipping FedEx, and they'd overnight it to you. So they were losing crap tons of money. But what would happen is every hour at 8.01, the same person would click on the website and and hope to be one of the hundred people that could get the specialty drivers. They would do specialty drivers or putters or wedges because that's or they might do a golf bag. But they were they the VCs are not paying attention to anything except your man, your visits per site are amazing. More money, more money, more money, more money. And they were just they they had a pile of a hundred dollar bills and were keeping the company going by by keeping a bonfire fueled by hundred dollar bills because the VCs were optimizing for, for visits to the site, thinking that would do it. They, they never did anything but lose crap tons of money. And they, and the VCs, cause in dot, dot com, it was just uh, maniacal. And sure enough, when they finally dug into the numbers and said, how is it that we're, we're that we're losing $400 every time we ship a driver, <laughs> the VCs finally looked at the numbers and said, what are you guys doing? And then they showed them their thing like they were brilliant. And the VCs immediately said, no more money for you. Yeah. <laughs> Which was the right answer. But when you optimize and you go single focus, this is this is the kind of stuff. Uh, yeah. I think of that story because that's what they optimize. The VCs told them, we'll, we'll write you checks if you get tons of visits to the site. So that, that you would visit nine times during the day. And if they didn't, if they didn't release the driver until five o'clock, you had to visit at eight, nine, 10, 11, all the way up till five and hope to get one of the hundred drivers at five in the five o'clock hour at five fifty nine. Mm -hmm. done. Silly, but uh, companies do this kind of stuff all the time. Right. And your retention of customers for non-special buys, non, you know, $500 drivers is gotta be horrible. Well, they're the, the, the funny thing was they're where they could make money really well was on their private labeled 
So they were Titleist or a brand or Callaway golf clubs, but white labeled. They just didn't have the Callaway brand. You could buy essentially the same equipment for half because it didn't have Callaway's logo on it. And Callaway, it was like buying Kirkland. It was buying buying Costco golf clubs instead of Titleist or Callaway. That's where they made money. Nobody ever uh, bought a whole set of clubs from these guys. They'd only get, because they do a name brand driver and a name brand putter. So they'd say, oh, I want the Titleist putter and they're $3.99 for a putter and they put it on for 99 bucks. And so everybody would say, man, if I could get one of those, that'd be awesome. It was just, just stupid. So they never, they never sold any golf balls or anything that, anything they could maybe make some money on. Never. <laughs> Bonkers. Bonkers. But Cubbies do it all the time. And all the I time. suspect we've just come out of a phase like that. And all of a sudden the VCs are saying, we need you to show some profitability. And that's, I think, a healthy thing instead of saying, especially for software companies, we just need you to grow the top line because the, the, the multiple that you'll get exited it is all based on gross revenue. Stupid. So wait a minute, you're at 800 million and you're losing money. Why would somebody pay you five X for that? <laughs> well, and there's, there's, there are some circumstances too, where like marketplaces are a great example where you, you actually like, you know, that you can scale your way out of nonsense. Most yes. businesses, however, do not scale out of nonsense. No overwhelming majority. Like if you're not sure, assume you won't. Right. Because most transactions aren't as sticky as you would hope them to be. Isn't it true though, would the corollary be true that if you're in nonsense and trying to scale, you're going to scale dysfunction or nonsense. You're going to do a downward scale out of business because you don't really know what the hell you're doing. Like you don't, you don't have any control over, or you don't have any understanding of really how you work. Yeah, I think that I think that the like some of the exceptions to that. Yes, I think that's true. Some of the exceptions would be things like fixed assets, obviously, right? You, you scale out of those. There could be some circumstances where like actually getting to this next funding stage allows you to do X, Y, Z thing and that in turn. But like, again, that has to go into just like this, this broader plan and this comprehension of like, where is my business actually performing? Where is it not? And if something happens, where am I going to get kicked in the teeth? Yep. And if the only way that you're going to get to the next phase, if, you know, it's either in one scenario going to take 10 years or in another scenario, it's going to take you six months, but it's going to be wild, crazy. It's not going to be profitable, but you know, because of like, these are hard tested assumptions that people won't leave then like, okay, well, maybe that's an argument. Also real quick, first figure out if they're not going to leave. Don't make a, don't make a silly assumption there. Like don't kind of guess, like you have to know. Right. Right. A fun question we, we ask all of our guests and we'll end with this. If a National Geographic film crew followed you around in junior high school, seventh and eighth grade, and then made a 90-minute nature show about the, the, the life of Eric as seventh grader, would you or anyone else have bet on you like a futures bet that you said 15 years later, I'd bet on this guy to be a founder or to be a badass or to be an entrepreneur based on what the, the film crew saw in seventh grade. Ooh, how often do people say no? And how often do people say yes? I'll, I'll tell you what's common. They, we see both sides of the spectrum. Okay. So we either, say, split? some people say, oh, they would have said, I'm going to be in juvie hall and a, a career criminal. Or 
they say, yeah, you know, I think it was all there because I'd already started two businesses and I was selling baseball cards or I was doing Pokemon or a, and you go, oh yeah. So, okay. You're nerd. Cause everybody's, everybody thinks they're cool in seventh grade, but I don't, I've never met anybody that said, oh man, I was the man in seventh grade. I was, I was, I was, I was all that in seventh it's grade. Peak of my, like, it's peak seventh of my grade. You have, you have braces, pimples, and you, and a bad haircut. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Everybody has that. Um, but you get too, you, not too many people in the middle unless they were shy and introverted. And then they just said, I was a ghost in seventh grade. Nobody paid attention to me. We get that every once in a while too. But uh, I, you know, I really, I really don't, I'm not really sure. I wish I had an amazing story. Like I started a lawn care business that scaled across four counties or that like, <laughs> I, but I, I didn't in seventh grade. I think in seventh grade, I was obsessed with Grand Theft Auto and <laughs> probably would have stayed up until like 4 a.m. playing Diablo. Somehow I would have snuck through that. I'm, you know, I would have otherwise gotten in trouble staying up that late. Played a bunch of hockey. I, I think if there was a reason someone would have bet on me, it was because I, I think I – two things. So I um, – in terms of the like – the traits that I think are really important for successful entrepreneurs. The, the first one is, I would say, is just perseverance in that you you have to be able to get kicked in the teeth over and over and over and over and over and over and just expect it to continue and keep going. And keep going. Yep. And so I think in seventh grade, I probably started to show some signs of that where I just like it. It doesn't matter if the buzzer's not rung, then the outcome isn't proven. Like I could be down by 30 points in a game of hockey and like zero percentage likelihood of actually being the victor, but it doesn't matter. The buzzer hasn't gone yet and I won't stop fighting. So I probably had some early signs of that. And then also understanding how to get out of systems, meaning combination of people and processes, how to get out of those things that I like, whatever I needed or wanted. Yeah which is probably why I wasn't an incredible high school student is that I just figured out there are ways around it. <laughs> yeah. No, that's, that's a, that's a good bet for a future entrepreneur. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. I also, you know, like I also was, or, it's, it's a, or, or for a, yeah, a drug kingpin, you, a, the, the same set of skills. Yeah. I can, I can <laughs> that's tell you entrepreneur, kingpin, that's entrepreneurism so. too. A drug kingpin is an entrepreneur. I, I saw something recently that one of the one of the cartels in Mexico is like the the nation's largest employer. It's incredible. Yeah, yeah. like that is that is a that is an enterprise. Yeah. They're doing things that are beyond questionable, and lots of people have died because of decisions they make and the profit they make. But like, yeah, same argument could be made for Philip Morris. I think I their none of quarter, your sponsors are Philip Morris, by the way. Their quarterly reviews are a little more physical than yours and mine. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> if they're not if they're not feeling what you're doing, mm, that that's yeah. a tough that's a tough quarterly review. It includes it includes a memorial service. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's the difference. So yeah, when they ask the question, you know, who who do I pull who do I put a bullet in today? They're they're being literal. They're not right. making a statement exactly. out of figurative speech. <laughs> well, that's great. Well, Eric, thank you for appearing on Genius at Scale and sharing your wisdom, your stories, and your depth and insights. That's super valuable for our audience. Thank you for so the... much for having me. I appreciate it. really enjoyed the conversation. I appreciate the opportunity to be here. No, that's great. And for our longtime listeners, we will see you again on our next episode of Genius at Scale. All the best. Thanks for joining me on another powerful episode of Genius at Scale. 
If you enjoyed today's episode and want to continue your journey into the world of scaling, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. And while you're there, leave us a five-star review and let the world know how the insights of these amazing CEOs helped you. Also, if you're hungry to discover more counterintuitive strategies to scale your business, don't forget to grab a copy of my book, The Little Book of Big Scale, where I've compiled wisdom and insights from CEOs who have successfully scaled their companies against all odds. Or you can go to our website, www.evokinggenius.com backslash book. Thanks again for tuning in. Go forth and scale.